0: hear the word of the lord the elder the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth beloved I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul for I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came to testify to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we also add our testimony you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated, friends. Please pray with me. Father, as we now turn our attention to your word, we pray that by the power of your spirit you would do what only you can do. We ask that you would come and speak to us. All glory be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Do you know what captures your attention? Do you know what captures your attention? Or to ask the question in in a little different way, suppose someone wanted to take as much of your attention as possible. How could they hold your attention? What content do you suppose would keep you fixated? Suppose someone wanted your attention so they could I don't know sell it to advertisers or something like that. And they would do that via small breaks on this electronic screen that your attention was fixated on. Supposing that you had one of these in a living room or an office or maybe even a small one that would like fit on the top of your lap or one you could put in your pocket. Supposing that something like that existed and supposing that somebody wanted as much of your attention as they could possibly get, what do you suppose would be the most engaging content? Well, we don't have to suppose. We know. Friends, this is what Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube have been doing for over a decade, an experiment with billions of test subjects. The answer, political content, that is slightly more extreme than what you currently hold to. Close enough to your belief that it has one foot grounded in what you think, but far enough away from your belief that it's intellectually interesting. It is a surefire way to capture your attention. We've been able to figure this out, Well, not because it's new, no, print media has been doing this for centuries, TV media has been doing this for decades, but social media, the internet media, they've got it down to a science. See they can track exactly what you look at, when you look at it, down to the millisecond. So they know exactly what engages you. And then they can tailor the content, not just to everyone in Yakima, not to everyone at St. Andrews, but to you, to an audience of one. There's a downside to this, friends. The downside is that you never have any outside input that disagrees with you. And so because you only ever see things that you agree with, you get convinced that, I'm pretty smart. You've got this whole world thing down and those idiots who can't seem to see it your way what is wrong with them if they would just open their eyes then they would understand but they don't presumably because they can't and so you become isolated in the truth that you know to be true isolated from people who disagree with you because they are not one of you and it is divisive It breeds pride, a knowledge that puffs up. And this pride leads to division. And to see the fruit of this, friends, think of our nation. We are nothing politically if not divided. After 23 years of differing parties chanting, not my president, could you imagine what a gracious concession speech would sound like? I wanna share with you the most gracious one, the best one in the history of all presidential elections. It is traditionally American to fight hard before an election. It is equally traditional to close ranks as soon as the people have spoken. That which unites us as American citizens is far greater than that which divides us as political parties. I urge you all to give General Eisenhower the support he will need to carry out the great task that lie before him. I pledge him mine. We vote as many, but we pray as one. With a united people, with faith in democracy, with common concern for others less fortunate around the globe, we shall move forward with God's guidance toward the time when his children shall grow in freedom and dignity in a world at peace. It's Adlai Stevenson. Do you hear Stevenson's love in his words it is so clear that he loves America more than he loves his ideas for America and it is so clear that he loves humanity more than he loves America and so what does that do it unites it's what love does love unites pride divides love unites you know this to be true in your own life friends Think of times that you have been knit together with others in the midst of tragedy because of the bonds of love. You know that pride divides. Think of times that you have pushed other people away in pride. And that is what we will see in our passage today. The unity of love and the division of pride. The unity of love and the division of pride. We will address our text under three headings. The commendation of love, verses 1 through 8. The condemnation of division, verses 9 and 10. And the recommendation of unity, verses 11 through 15. The commendation of love, the condemnation of division, and the recommendation of unity. Let's begin verse 1, the commendation of love. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love... In truth. Okay, normally I would start here and ask some sort of question like, Who is this elder? But you guys are smart. You can see the name of the book. It's the Apostle John. Here with the Gospel of John, he will write Revelation. And previous to this, he's written first, second, and now here, third, John. In our text today, John is writing a letter to a man named Gaius. They'll be delivered by a man named Demetrius. And I'm going to put forward that Demetrius was actually carrying two letters on his person on that journey, both 2nd and 3rd John. And if that is the case, then Gaius is the pastor of the church referred to as the elect lady in 2nd John. And this is not my own idea. I'm actually stealing it from commentators who are much, much smarter than I am. So let me paint it for you in its fullness. John writes two letters, one personally for the pastor of a church in Ephesus, Gaius, and another for him to read to his congregation and then circulate among other congregations in that area. John sends Demetrius to carry these letters, and on both of these letters he attaches a promise that he himself will visit soon. Both these letters say that John would not rather write with pen and ink, but intends to see them in person. So what does the apostle say to the pastor? What would it be like to be a fly on the pastor's wall? It begins with a greeting, reminding Gaius that he loves him. He says twice in one verse, beloved, whom I love in truth. And following that embracing address, John goes on to greet Gaius, verse 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Very quickly, friends, we must dispel some incorrect doctrine that is sometimes held around this verse. See, the prosperity gospel movement would have you believe that if things are well with your soul, then you will be healthy. Here's their argument. God doesn't want you sick. You're only sick because of sin that you have in your own life. That clearly cannot be the case from this text. Notice, notice, friends. John says that it does go well with Gaius's soul, and yet, because he loves Gaius... He is still moved by affection to pray that God would keep his body well. Based on what John is praying for, we might conclude the exact opposite. That your soul being well has little or nothing to do with your physical health. But now we're left to ask a question. Why would John assume that Gaius' soul is well? Verse 3. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John does not assume that Gaius' soul is well. He's been told by the brothers. These brothers, as we'll see, are Christians who traveled for the sake of the name, verse 7. They were itinerant preachers who went from church to church preaching for a couple or a few Sundays before going on to the next church to do the same there. And in a world where there were no cell phones, instant messaging, email, or even an organized mailing system, these traveling Christians were sources of news for the apostles. We see an interesting thing here. Because Paul always names his sources. Paul will say, I was so glad to hear Timothy's report. But John doesn't. So we're left to ask, why? Why does John just say the brothers? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One, we know it's plural, so it's more than one of them. And Gaius knows who they are, so instead of listing off a strong, long string of name, he refers to them as a corporate group, the brothers. Secondly, John is almost certainly trying to shield them from any sort of persecution, So if Demetrius was to be arrested on his travels, Gaius would not be implicated, nor would these brothers who are not named. Notice, friends, the name of Jesus is not in this letter. The word, the gospel, the good news is not in this letter. John only obliquely refers to it by the truth. Of course, Gaius knew what this meant. John doesn't have to say that his goal, his reason for not doing this is to free them from any sort of persecution so they can continue to travel and preach. So what was these brothers? What was their report? Verse five. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Their report was simply this that Gaius loved them. He loved them. Not in the hallmark way that we feel so warmly fond of. He loved them practically in a way that was inconvenient, probably self-sacrificial. As we will see later in the condemnation of Diotrephes, these traveling Christians needed things they needed housing which Gaius either offered or arranged but people who are housed need food and water and then when they leave to travel for who knows how long they need enough food and water and clothing to be able to make it to their next destination so though Gaius did not know these men they were strangers to him he loved them because they were they were brothers How do you stand here, friends? How well do you love the brothers? I'm not asking how warmly do you feel towards the people of St. Andrews. I'm asking how well do you really love those who are serving in gospel ministry? What are you willing to sacrifice for them? Could you offer them food? Do you? Do you give of your money? Could you welcome them into your house? A stranger. Now friends, I'm not advocating for folly. I'm not saying that husbands do not have a responsibility to protect their wives nor parents their children. I am suggesting, I am suggesting that perhaps you have made an idol of security. And that that has made it so you cannot do what the Bible commands you must do and show hospitality to strangers. Dear friends, everything that you have been given, you have been given to steward for God. You know this. Do you steward it for his purposes? I encourage you, when you know of a need and you have the ability to meet the need, meet the need. It's what Demetrius did. Sorry, it's what Gaius did. And their need was great. Verse 7. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Not only are these brothers on a noble mission, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they also refuse any sort of support from pagans. And that's what that word Gentiles means, Pagan. Some translations, you have NIV, NLT, uh, there several of them, C-E-B, they're going to say non-believers, unbelievers, pagans. But we know that this isn't the traditional Jew-Gentile distinction we think of because Gaius is a Gentile name. And so the brothers who received support from Gaius did not receive support from Gentiles. How can that be? It's because John does not consider Gaius a Gentile. Gaius is no longer a pagan. So Gaius is no longer a Gentile. He is now part of the true Israel. He is one of God's people. And as such, John encourages him to support the brothers because in so doing, he actually takes part in their ministry. Have you ever considered this, friends? Do you realize that when you give to St. Andrews, Swan Graphics, Emanuel Classical School, foreign missionaries that you know and support, when you give to them, you are actually, like really, literally, partnering with them in their gospel work. Of course, that's how we all talk about it. Writing a letter for giving, we say, we invite you to partner with us as we fill in the blank here. But have you considered that's really what you're doing? That as you minister to that minister of God's word and through that minister of God's word as he ministers to the flock that God has given to him. That's what you are doing. You are practically and really partnering with them. Now friends, this does give us a warning. Who are you partnering with? Who is it you're partnering with? Is it someone that would get Gaius's commendation of love? Or would they, like Diotrephes, receive a condemnation for their pride? Our next heading, the condemnation of pride, verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Friends, this is staggering. The only thing we know about Diotrephes is is here, from verses 9 and 10. He's not mentioned anywhere else, not in church history, not anywhere else in the Bible. And some theologians think they can probably figure out what heretical group he was maybe a part of, kind of. But there's still a few options. Everyone admits we don't really know. We don't know who he really was. But what we do know is he refused to bow the knee to the apostles. And what we will see later is that he clearly had some sort of authority in the church, This is a pastor who refuses to acknowledge an apostle. He is prideful. It's a manager who refuses to submit to the boss above them. This is a a pastor who refuses to acknowledge the authority of a presbytery. This is a father or husband who refuses to submit to his own pastor. And the issue is that Rejecting the immediate authority is not the problem. When you reject the immediate authority, you reject the ultimate authority, Christ himself. And so, because Christ is not submitted to, Diotrephes must be confronted, verse 10. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. If John comes to see Gaius, and he writes with every intention to, then John will confront the usurper. Maybe to Diotrephes' face, but certainly to the congregation. You might be thinking, Riker, how do you know that he was going to speak to the congregation? That's a very, very good question. Thank you for asking it. Firstly, it's because Diotrephes is causing division. Not only does he reject the apostles, he slanders them. Friends, he is so proud, so full of himself that he thinks he knows doctrine better than the people who received it from the very mouth of God. And he doesn't stop it smugly, silently thinking that he's the best and knows the most. He actually slanders the apostles as though Jesus was a poor judge of the leaders of his church. But Diotrephes, in his infinite wisdom, that far surpasses the wisdom of Christ, he, and he alone, is the trumpeter of truth. Ignore what that old guy says. You know that old guy who lived with and learned from the incarnate God? Who was standing there at his death, witnessed his burial? Who shared a meal with the resurrected Christ? Witnessed his ascension? Who was there at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was first poured out. Who laid his hands on Samaritans and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. Yeah, ignore that guy. He, He doesn't know anything. But me, this is a public sin. This is a public sin. The congregation must be made aware of it. Because even worse than slandering the apostles, which is pretty bad, he is punishing righteous actions. He refuses those to receive those who are sent by John and he actually kicks people out of the church who do. Imagine being kind and giving and loving to a brother who is ministering for the gospel and being excommunicated from St. Andrew's because of it. He is punishing righteousness as though it was sin. This is evil unimaginably evil. It is division caused by an unthinkable pride. John must condemn it, and so he does the condemnation of pride. Now, John recommends Gaius to fight against the division, the recommendation of unity. Verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God and whoever does evil has not seen God. The first part of our recommendation seems so obvious that it appears to hardly bear repeating. Even by John. Do not imitate evil. Uh Uh-huh. Imitate good. Yeah, Riker, that was the plan. But in its context... It has everything to do with avoiding being like Diotrephes and instead imitating the brothers. Here, John draws a firm line between those who do good, the brothers, Gaius, Demetrius, and those who do evil, Diotrephes, those who are sent from God and those who have not even seen God. Now, you may be thinking, wait just one second. Isn't John being divisive? John's literally dividing these into two groups. Isn't he being divisive? And while that is the call of our postmodern culture, the truth is, no, he's not. Because dividing from the divisive is not divisive. In the same way that having a gangrenous limb removed from your body is not self-harm, dividing from the divisive is not divisive. The real self harm would be to leave that limb attached. And to remove the infected limb is actually self care. So, to divide yourself from the divisive is actually pursuing unity. To remain joined to them would be divisive. To copy them, even worse. So, John says imitate good, copy the brothers. Do not imitate evil, do not strive for division. Don't be a diotrophes. Instead, be like Demetrius, verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. What sounds clunky and strange to our ears is a very normal Jewish threefold recommendation. John cites three witnesses to testify to Demetrius' goodness. First, he cites everyone. And of course, he does not mean every single person because he could not put Diotrephes in that list. So who is everyone? Everyone at the sending church, everyone in the churches of the regions that he's visited, all the brothers that Demetrius has come into contact with. Added to that is John, and then by extension, the apostles' testimony, which, unlike Diotrephes, Gaius knows to be true. But even greater than that, John claims that even Jesus himself, the truth, provides a good testimony. Now, how could this be? Is John claiming that he has received direct revelation from Christ about the state of Demetrius' soul? It's possible. He's gotten plenty of direct revelation from Christ throughout his life, and he will again when he writes the book of Revelation. But I don't think that's what he's getting at. I think what he's referring to is the much more common indirect testimony that everyone's life testifies to. Demetrius has lived his life in a way that makes it clear to John as an outside observer that Christ had redeemed him. In this way, Christ himself provides a good testimony for Demetrius. Demetrius. This is because no one, no one in the first century would have abandoned whatever earthly pursuits they had to serve as a messenger for an apostle. There was no glory in the ministry. There was no name on your door. No comfortable office shelved with beautiful leather-bound books. No esteem in the general community of Ephesus. No guaranteed annual sabbatical to work on your own academic pursuits. No platform to build a brand from. No podcast to co-host. There was nothing that could serve as the trappings for the modern man who illicitly enters the ministry. So what would lead someone to enter the ministry? Let alone as a messenger for an apostle. A desire to serve Christ and his bride. At the cost of everything else. A desire to serve Christ and his bride. Remember, Demetrius is one of the brothers. He lives hand to mouth based on the generosity of the churches that he visits. Thus, by his outward actions, the truth itself provides a good testimony. What testimony is offered for you? What would your co-workers say? What about the of the other children on your kids' sports teams? What about your classmates, your parents, your children, your spouse? What would the members of St. Andrew testify about you? Much more importantly, what testimony does the truth offer for you? If someone was to look at your life hour by hour, what is the testimony? Is it apparent that your time is the Lord's? If someone had access to your very inner motivations and thoughts and emotions. What is the testimony? Brothers and sisters, I pray that you find it lacking. I pray that you realize that the work of sanctification is not yet done in your life. That you still are growing into the image of Christ. And if you don't, If you don't find it lacking, that's alarming, friends. You've given yourself to pride. And if you continue in it, you will divide and divide and divide and divide until you find yourself completely isolated, entirely sure that you were right every single step of the way. But on the other hand, if you realize your shortcomings, but they haunt you, they pain you, Friend, you too are in danger of focusing only on yourself and dividing from everyone else that you've ever wronged because the shame is too great. And the good news, friends, is that the gospel speaks to both of you. It confronts you in your pride because the God of all creation became a man. The eternal one suffered the dailiness of life. The king became a servant to all. So how can you remain fixed in your pride when God himself descended and humbled himself? The gospel also erases your shame, beloved. Because Christ did not descend only to serve in his life, but to serve with his life. To lay down his life for your sake. The light of the world was extinguished. The only one who was sinless bore your sin. That the exact sin that you are ashamed of was nailed to him on the cross. How can you remain fixated on your shame when you bear it no more? Christ has borne it for you. You only have his righteousness. In his love, he has unified us once and forever, confronting our pride by bearing our shame. Now again, friends, friends, In this letter, John differs from Paul in that he does not say any of that explicitly. But it's because he didn't want to write it. He wanted to communicate it, but face-to-face. Verse 13, I had much to write you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face-to-face. John is planning to visit Gaius soon. Notice that John does not write these things because he is planning on seeing Gaius. And then he says they'll talk face to face. There's a level of certainty here, despite that John saying he hopes to. This is a real, vibrant, living hope. Not a far-off aspiration, not a wish upon a star. And all of John's conduct indicates that they will speak soon. So, planning to see him soon, John concludes his letter with even more recommendations for unity. The last of our passage, verse 15. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. It is a clear call to peace, a call to unity, a reminder that Gaius is greeted and a call towards greeting others, acting in unity. And John doesn't name the friends doesn't need to. Gaius knows who they are. They're all those who live in peace with God and with his people. So friends, would we always strive towards unity and love? Would we always seek to fight division? And would we first and foremost divide ourselves from the divisiveness of our own pride within ourselves? In this would God be glorified. His saints served and sinners be united to his body through the love of his gospel. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. Please knit division into unity and change prideful hearts into hearts full of love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.